0: Today, on Not Cleared, in remembrance of the 20 year mark of 9 11, we have a bit of a different episode because I was only four at the time of 9 11, so I don't really have much of a recollection of the events and everything that happened other than my mom crying, and that's pretty much where my memory ends. So, Morgan and I decided to talk to the center staff to get their thoughts and memories of what they were doing on 9 11 and how it shaped the United States just in terms of camaraderie and patriotism. And at the end, we talk to Kyle Scheidler and we get a little more in depth about the motives of the terrorists and how 9-11 shaped national security in the United States and the whole world more generally, and how this all ties into the United States rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan just a couple weeks ago. So before we get into all the other center staff stories and memories of that fateful day, 20 years ago, Morgan is going to Explain what she remembers from Tuesday in 2001.
1: On 9-11, I was eight and I had started a new school that year and I didn't like it. And I was arguing with my mom about going to third grade and my dad called and told us to turn on the TV. And I grew up in Utah, so we were two hours behind Eastern time. And I just saw the, the hole in the building and all the smoke and I think earlier that year there had been a building knocked down in, in our town and I had been asking my mom, like, how do they make sure all the people are out? And she explained that, you know, there's definitely no one in there accidentally or otherwise. So it didn't occur to me that there were people inside the building. And then the second plane hit and I asked my mom, like, who are there people on the plane? And she said, yes. And there's people in the building. Um, and I think when you're a kid, you kind of look to adults and calibrate their reaction to things. So I could see how upset everyone was, but I don't think I could appreciate the magnitude of what happened and how many people were inside. Um, And I went to school and we weren't allowed to go inside until the bell rang. So I just remember the front of the school being a huge swarm of kids all discussing what was happening. And then our teacher had to explain what hijacking meant and what terrorism meant, and then um, I I also remember being really fixated on whether or not there were kids on the plane because I just thought that the kids must have been really scared. And I looked this up recently, and there were eight kids on the hijacked planes, which you don't hear about as much. Um, and that night, or whenever the president addressed the country, I don't remember anything he said, but I remember feeling like this awful event happened, but it's going to be okay and we're going to be safe. And maybe I would think differently now, but at the time it was comforting. And I really do remember the patriotism and the unity. There were so many American flags and just so many demonstrations of patriotism. And it had been a contentious election the previous year, but even people that had been, you know, saying Bush was an idiot or whatever, you know, were showing their pride in being American, and I've never seen anything like that since. And I hope that we see that again one day, but not as the result of a major tragedy.
2: My name is Fred Flights. I'm president of the Center for Security Policy. On September 11, 2001, I was chief of staff to Undersecretary of State John Bolton. I had an office on the top floor of the State Department, and outside my window, I could see the Pentagon I used to get in early every day and provide intelligence briefings to John. I was on loan to the State Department from the CIA, I actually worked for both organizations. And I had a television in my office, and I remember the first plane hitting one of the World Trade Center towers, and we just thought it was a catastrophic accident. And I told John about this, and he said, just keep him informed. Then a little while later, we saw the second plane, and I went in to tell him, and we both knew it was terrorism. And uh, I tell you, we were all pretty upset. And then a little while later, we saw the smoke rising from the Pentagon. And John sent the whole office out immediately because we were worried the State Department might be next. And because he did that, his staff was not uh, stuck at state for like eight hours. Right after I, I left the parking garage, they locked the building down all day long. And, um you couldn't contact your families because the cell phone service was out. And I remember how upset my family was. I live about an hour from DC and they're hearing these stories on the news of um, explosions near the State Department. They weren't true, but there was just chaos in the city. Uh, th- there was, an, We didn't know how many planes were coming. There were stories of additional planes. And uh, the news reports were just so chaotic, and I just know my wife uh, was just so thrilled when I got home. My whole family, they were calling her constantly, saying, how do we get a hold of him?" Because they thought maybe I was at the Pentagon that day, because I went to the Pentagon frequently in, in my job uh, f- for Under Secretary Bolton. Uh, and I remember afterwards the, uh, the chaos in the government trying to make sense of what happened air travel across the world shut down, across the United States. Um, there was a, a huge surge in increased security. You, could, you can't drive in front of the State, state Department anymore. Uh, and that is because of the 9-11 attacks. They significantly strengthened security across Washington, across every building. This certainly was true at the Pentagon. Uh, huge amounts of money were spent at the Pentagon uh, to increase security. I, I can't even get into what they've done to make it more secure. It really changed the face of Washington. Uh, it changed. I mean, I also saw this in Congress when I worked for. I joined Congress uh, about five years later, how much signif- significantly improved security is at, at, at Congress. Civilians used to be able to just walk into the Capitol building and walk around. That changed after 9-11. There, there was a, a huge increase in security. Um, I don't know whether we did too much, but we certainly did a lot, and it, it just changed the way that we've lived
3: our lives. My name is Michael Waller. I'm Senior Analyst for Strategy at the Center for Security Policy. On 9-11 I was uh, I was at home getting my kids ready for school and I was supposed to go to the Pentagon. Oh,
4: wow.
3: I was in line to be a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for Central Asian Republics and I was thankfully late uh, but the my all the Pentagon people, the political appointees who were supposed to talk to me, were out of the country then, and they were, ended up being stuck out of the country for a while until they could get clearance to come back. So the Pentagon was really run only by about four Bush administration appointees. The rest were Clinton holdovers and career people. So there was no one to talk to really at the political level in the Pentagon until a week or two after the 9-11 attacks. I was working for the Center for Security Policy at the time, and our office was on L Street, and you could see the smoke coming from the Pentagon in the sky as you're driving down uh, the the numbered streets facing south. You could see the the, the smoke coming up. It was an eerie, uh, weird silence where people downtown were going about their business, but they really didn't know why or what they were doing. Mm. There was supposed to have been a meeting at the White House that afternoon with some people that I knew, and they had a group in from out of town. Uh, the White House was locked down. Uh, but you had White House staff who were locked out of their offices, but they still kept doing their jobs in the streets, in other offices, in this case a room adjacent to our office where they met, and they had that White House meeting. So you had a very surreal situation Um a friend of mine was—he uh, was CEO of National Geographic TV at the time—and he was with his crew. They were going to fly out on 9/11, and his wife made him late for his flight. And his flight was the one that hit the Pentagon. Wow! So he lost his crew oh. uh, on that flight. So he—he—you uh, know—you he had all of these uh, very strange. Uh, things that happened and then this fear of, are we next? Are they gonna blow us up next? What else are they going to hit? Uh, we didn't really know what was happening. And then in the ensuing weeks, you would feel little differences like uh, silence. So I took my kids to soccer every, I don't know how many times a weekend you know, on weekends. And you never really notice the noise outside in a suburban Washington DC until that noise is gone. There were no more airplanes flying over. It was just quiet. The sky was not crisscrossed with vapor trails like it normally is. It was a perfectly blue, beautiful sky. And all these sort of strange, creepy beauty, it's creepy because you know why it's happening, but there was no air travel happening whatsoever. People were locked down, but they were not locked down. Uh, People, and not your preppers of today, but just ordinary citizens, were going out buying big big plastic 55-gallon drums from Home Depot uh, to put water in with a few drops of bleach to store water in their basement in case there was a, a contamination of the public water supplies. Then you had the anthrax attack at the Heart Senate office building. So you're wondering, okay, are we going to get anthraxed and you had a whole anthrax scare. And what then what do you do about anthrax and what happens and you know what happens if they they uh, stop a vehicle on the bridge and torch it and then block traffic inside DC when people are trying to commute home or trying to commute in in the morning and and then you burning up a lot of people or, or We didn't know what was going to happen. So you're thinking of all these what-ifs. So people were buying chest freezers uh, to put in their basements or their garages and buying up food. And you had, though, you had a, it was not like the pandemic ones where everyone's hogging everything for themselves and pushing and shoving. It was more of a people would take what they need and they'd sort of be courteous of the others around them because it was more of a we're all in this together atmosphere rather than people imposing things on us. So it was a very different America at the time.
1: Kyle saw war protests in October and he was in Boston in college at the time. Did you see, I remember the unity is really what sticks out. The every single marquee or whatever it's called in front of fast food. Whatever those. Yeah. God bless America. Every single one. And so many American flags on every car, every house, everything. Um, Do you remember that, or is that just my childlike nostalgia? No,
3: everybody was pitching in. Everyone was united. Nobody was poking fingers saying, this is all George Bush's fault, or this is all the Mm. Republicans' fault. There was a real unity there. Uh, Now, Bush was more of a unifying kind of a president than, uh, than Donald Trump was. He was more of a mainstream politician. He had a much kinder personal public demeanor. But even so, the, uh, he, ma- he made efforts to be a unifying president, up to the point of it being kind of a caricature. But then he, got, he went up to New York City, and he stood there with then Mayor Rudy Giuliani, and they stood on the rubble of the mm-hmm. World Trade Center, and they said, you know, we're going to get the people who did this. Yeah, I remember that. But you, you know, the one time you had every New Yorker behind a Republican mm-hmm. president, but you had the, the police and the fire department and you know, the union workers and the, think of the iron workers' unions, the people who built the World Trade Center and these other buildings and the pipe fitters' unions and the electricians' unions and these others. Uh, everyone's together and was backing the president. And the president could have done anything he wanted. And indeed, he got uh, unanimous in both houses of Congress, except for one um, sort of anti-American member of Congress, uh, voting to support the president's war efforts to go after the people who did this.
1: That's unthinkable now.
3: Right. Now you have people siding with the people who did this to us, like with the pandemic. And now with, you know, who would have imagined 20 years later that al-Qaeda and the Taliban would be intact? Nobody would have imagined that at the time. It was a even um, nonviolent Americans were all of a sudden wanting to drop every piece of ordinance we could ever produce on anyone who did this to us.
4: Yeah.
3: There was a kindness in the country then where people looked out for each other more. People checked in on each other more. And while there were security measures that were gradually put into place we all understood why they were there it wasn't people um you know the the faucies of the world say, saying we must do this we must do that and then imposing everything on us those impositions came later on so you could go to the airport and you'd put your you'd go through security you go through the metal detector not a problem but then you have the we call them electronic strip search machines and and now you can see, well, this is starting to become a security industrial complex. So the big electronic strip search machines that we go through at the airports now, we don't think anything of. There was a major protest against those. And then not even the manufacturers were, were said that these should be put in every single gate of every single airport, just to have them off to the side to bring certain suspicious characters off to the side for an electronic strip search, but not for the average passenger. But then Mrs. Tom Daschle, who was the wife of the Senate Democrat leader Tom Daschle, got a $750,000 lobbying contract from L3, which manufactured these machines, to put these things in every gate of every airport and it became, it becomes now a vending opportunity and a lobbying and money-making opportunity for lawmakers. So you could see up close what was happening and we were told of course you can opt out of this you don't need to but then they would gradually make it as difficult as possible for people to opt out and that's where a lot of the resentment and suspicion of government and quote security germinated originally after 9 11 was they saw the corruption behind it
1: yeah i think that still exists by the way that people look out for each other in a kind way just not anywhere close to dc where we are
3: Well, yeah, I live on Capitol Hill, so you don't see as much as you might in
5: normal America. I think it
1: does exist, though.
5: Julie Taylor, Director of Development and Planned Giving. 9 11 was a Tuesday, and I was home that day because I was only working three days a week at that point. My daughter was just two, and so luckily I was home. I was watching the morning news as I often did. And as many people in the country were also watching um, in shock about what, when the first plane had hit. And as I was watching the reporter talk about it, um, I saw the second plane hit the other tower. And I thought, did I really see that? And the reporter stopped and was confused and, you know, people were talking in her ear. And um, I just didn't know what to think. Uh, I didn't know what this was, who this was, was this on purpose, was it an accident? I mean, really the same questions I think everybody was asking. Um, And I I think the, the full impact of it didn't hit me. Until later, um, a friend of mine, my best friend from high school, was visiting. And uh, we were downtown, and I was driving back and took the exit from the Memorial Bridge, driving back toward Arlington to get onto 395. And as you exit there, you look to your left, and that's where the plane hit. And there was an enormous black hole. That's hard to forget. Um, so even now, as I drive to work, I see the Arlington National Cemetery on one side and I see the Pentagon on the other. And I see that large parking lot in the Pentagon where all those people work every day to track what's happening around the world and is anybody going to do this again? And... um, I'm reminded of it every day, and though I d- didn't know anyone on any of those three planes well, um, I had met Barbara Olson a few months prior at a reception, and she was on the plane that went into the Pentagon, and um, she was a real role model. She was a conservative commentator. She was. Beautiful, elegant, intelligent, and it was just one example of what we had lost. And as a fundraiser, I, I look around at um, the ways that we remember her. And for example, she was a graduate of the Cardoza School of Law in New York, and they have a scholarship for women there. So if there are any young women interested in law, you can apply for that. And in her name um, lives on and and can help you get your law degree. Um, I know the Federal Society, where she started a chapter at Cardoza, also has held an annual memorial lecture in her honor. So I I see the, the beauty in the way that her name lives on through philanthropy.
6: This is Adam Savitt. I'm China program coordinator at the Center for Security Policy. Um, Well, I have a lot of connections in New York. I was born outside of New York. My whole family is from Brooklyn, so, you know, I had all family cousins working near the World Trade Center um, and, you know, tied into the city in various different ways. At the time, I was at Penn State, um, but the weekend before, uh, my cousin had his wedding, September 8th, uh, Saturday, Um, so I was in the city and I did see the World Trade Center. I would see it often to, to go, um, to Thanksgivings and other holidays. Uh, so it was pretty real in my mind. Um, but on the morning of the September 11th, um, I was a very different person. I was running a a meditation group. Um, (laughs) and I definitely identified as a socialist at the time. Um, and so I was at Kinko's making copies. Uh, for an event that the group was doing, or, or I think just advertising that the group existed, something like that. Uh, so I was at Kinko's and someone, I overheard someone say, oh, a, a plane went into the World Trade Center. And, and, I, and then someone else said, oh, they're going to make a movie about that or something like that. Right. You know, people assuming that it was a small plane or no, no one understood the details yet. And it was like, oh, that's crazy. You know, like a prop plane that was, it was a mistake and maybe a few people died and it wasn't a big deal so then i was going around and putting up these posters around campus um and then everyone seemed a little agitated everyone's eyes were kind of going down or everyone seemed a little something else was going on i knew it wasn't just a, a small plane um and then i walked into like the student union building you know the main building and everyone was gathered around the tvs um watching and then i saw the smoke Basically, I saw uh, the plume of smoke, which then later everyone understood was the first tower going down. But someone was saying, uh, I said, oh, wow, so that must have been a bigger plane. And then someone said, uh, yeah, the building is gone. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> it is very hard to understand. Um, yeah. And I, I guess that's the moment where, you know, I understood everything was different. And, it, um, you know, classes were canceled. Um, I Remember there was like an interfaith service that evening. Was it uh, hard?
1: Did you were you worried about your family and did it take a while to oh, get through to them? Yeah,
6: so the cousin that had the wedding um worked at the American Express building which was within a block or two uh, of the towers, but he was on his honeymoon <laughs> in Italy. Um and then another cousin worked somewhere in the financial district as, as well, but but he was fine. Um but yeah, you know, like that was a crystallizing moment. Again, I, I felt like a left winger, like a lot of people do and, at that age. Um, and at that moment, I, I understood the United States is something important. It needs to be defended. It needs to have, you know, it, it needs to have borders. It needs to have a strong military. Actually, I remember going back to my apartment and having this transformation over over the next few days And my roommate was sort of like my roommate who also was in the meditation society (laughs) uh, is like, oh, well, why don't you, you should join the national guard then or something like that. And I was kind of like, maybe or whatever. I literally changed overnight. Um, and then I started getting interested in what, how, why did this happen and learning about jihad and that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, and just learning, taking defense seriously. And, uh, it eventually, uh, eventually I, I started blogging and doing YouTube videos and this sort of thing. Um, And years later, that led to connections, which led to the center, which led to an internship at the center, um, which led to the job at the center. So I, you know, I I was a history major. I had no idea what I was going to do. You know, this horrible event uh, gave me direction.
7: My name is John Rosamondo. I'm the Senior Analyst for Defense Policy here at the Center for Security Policy. (laughs) America has changed quite a bit since uh, 9-11. We've become a more divided uh, nation and uh, 20 years of war has uh, taxed our uh, ability as a superpower. Uh, On 9-11, America enjoyed near hegemony uh, in terms of its power, prestige, and so forth. But uh, the wars that have followed have uh, taken a uh, definite toll on that uh, power and prestige. On 9-11, I was a working reporter uh, at at, uh, cnsnews.com in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, I uh, didn't find out about uh, the attacks until I got out of the uh, Washington, D.C. Metro and uh, arrived at the office to see people uh, looking at uh, the uh, towers on fire. And I ended up spending all of 9-11 making phone calls to different uh, uh, cities or uh, to the pilots' union uh, regarding the flights that had uh, hit uh, the World Trade Center. And uh, it was just a really weird and eerie place to be in Alexandria after because There wasn't any uh, movement on the streets And I remember hearing uh, fighter aircraft overhead uh, over the uh, nation's capital and, uh, you know, hearing the engines and then I almost like shuddered. And uh, I, uh, you know, think that uh, it was just a really, uh, really interesting and uh, a strange time in history. I saw the uh, fire engines going from Alexandria to the Pentagon after it was hit. And, uh, you know, immediately uh, uh, thinking, you know, what has happened? But 9-11 ended up uh, shaping my career and my decision to look into uh, Islamic extremism because a few days later, I met some of the top uh, leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States and uh, met a guy named Abdurrahman Alamudi, who is uh, an al-Qaeda financier. So I'd say that was a rather interesting way of uh, beginning my career.
0: Talk about how it directly impacted your job at the news company, because I'm assuming that's all that you guys were covering. Um,
7: after 9-11, I was uh, constantly uh, covering things related to the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, covering the attacks against uh, you know Muslim uh, organizations and Muslims in uh, the United States. Uh, I uh, ended up, uh, you know, Finding out a little bit about uh, the threat uh, that uh, taking Taliban prisoners, uh, you know that ended up a few years later becoming uh, the question of uh, Guantanamo Bay and uh, it was you know something to be there at the uh, very beginning and to see it unfold over the following decades.
8: Hi, my name is Maya Carlin. I'm an analyst uh, with the Center for Security Policy. On 9-11, I was six years old and living in New York. Um, I just remember my father at the time worked in a high rise in Manhattan, um, not extremely close to uh, the World Trade Center, but still blocks away, and I just remember my mom being super worried, um, but I wasn't really understanding obviously what was going on at six years old. and. I remember waiting at home after school with my mom and my sister and our neighbors, and we were all gathered around um, our TV set just watching the World Trade Center collapse um, and not really understanding the gravity of the situation. The thing that impacted me the most of the time was that my dad wasn't able to get from Manhattan to Long Island for a few days because all of the, the trains were shut down um, and like the power was off, phone lines were down, so it took a while to communicate with him.
1: How long before you knew he was okay?
8: I don't recall. It definitely more than a few hours. He wow. ended up staying with my mom's cousin, um, who lived on the Lower East Side at the time. So we were able to communicate with her about it. And I remember just the stress that my mom was under at the time. And going back to school, um, it was pretty rough because there were four kids in my grade alone who lost their dads oh um, in 9-11 because uh, I grew up in Oslo County, a suburb of Manhattan of Manhattan, so like a 20-minute train ride away, and that was a common work destination for, you know, parents wow. in my community. I think adults at that point were concerned about further attacks. No
1: one knew what was going on. Do you remember any of that, or was it just not something on your radar?
8: It really wasn't something on my radar. I think in the initial couple couple years after 9/11, the only thing I really that registered with me was that wow, I have, you know, friends who. Fathers have died and that was the most impactful for me Um, But it wasn't until later on when you know, I could understand more information that went behind 9-11 that it definitely just Impacted being in New York, you know, just being in um, the Amtrak station or the Long Island Railroad or just like in major um, Destinations in Manhattan like Times Square and kind of just being always a little bit concerned that something else would happen
4: This is Sean Seifert. I'm the Center for Security Policy uh, CFO I've been here for a number of years, um, but I was not here on nine 11. Um, at the time I was actually at my first job out of college, uh, working for, um, T. Rowe Price. Um, I got into work that morning and, um, they had a, a cafeteria, I went over there to get breakfast and they had, um, always a big drop down, um, like TV screen and they had CNN news playing on it at all times. And, um, so it was showing live video at the time of what we thought was an accidental plane crash into the building. Um, and I remember standing there watching it with a bagel, um, about to take a bite when the second plane hit. So I watched it happen, you know, live. Um, we hadn't really started working yet cause we operated based on the, um, when we were at work, um, but we operated based on when the, the stock market opened. So we never officially opened that day and they ended up sending us all home probably around lunchtime. Um, And I just remember going home and, um,
0: you know, watching everything unfold on TV. And I think you made a good point there that I've heard a lot is that people, when like the first plane hit, they thought it was just an accident. Yeah. But when the second plane hits the tower, then people, they kind of connect the dots and like, okay, this isn't just an accident that two planes don't just accidentally crash into two buildings right next to each other. Absolutely. I mean, when I heard a plane
4: and hit a building, I mean, I assumed it was like a small passenger plane. I mean, not a passenger plane, a small, you know, a guy flying a plane around and he, you know, falls asleep or has a heart attack or whatever. Um, And, you know, not much damage done, maybe just clipped the side of this building or whatever. Um, But then when, as soon as I saw the second plane hit, I mean, it was just, you knew right away that this is not an accident, especially when you saw that this is a, you know a jumbo jet you know driven by professionals that do this for a living and you know they're in contact with radio towers and all that type of thing this isn't this is clearly was not an accident um and then you know i remember sitting at my desk and there wasn't much to do because you know we didn't have anything going on yet um because the market hadn't opened and um you know started getting emails with all kinds of different um you know rumors as to what was going on about um there's supposedly a um a bomb found outside the usa today building here in dc i think and stuff like this that ended up not being true um but you know who knew at that time what was, what was going to happen um and it just you know sort of got scarier as the day went on and there were a few more planes in, and then i remember them grounding um grounding air traffic and you know i just really watched the whole thing unfold live you know president bush in the classroom um you know i remember seeing that over and over again when um andy card came in came in and whispered in his ear what had happened
1: There really couldn't have been a worse place for him to have been in front of kids. Like, what do you do? Oh, I think he just kept reading the book and then left after the fact.
0: Yeah, yeah, I believe so. And probably because when someone whispers something like that to you, you're like, oh, it can't possibly be that bad. And then I mean, his face,
1: you could see in his face, like, who wants to be the president at that point?
4: Right. I'm sure he just wanted to get out of there and find out, you know, details just like you know the rest of us didn't we want to find out what was going on and why um and i mean it really um i mean it really changed you know i didn't have any personal experience with it in the sense that i didn't know anybody that you know died in it um i had my roommate from college was living in new york at the time um and he worked in um i think world trade six one oh, of the please. smaller buildings i think the, one of the ones with maybe the green dome one and i think um and he was walking to work when this happened, and had stopped to buy um, had stopped to, buy, you know, at the time to buy a CD, and was late a little late getting to work wow. because of it. And so who knows, um, you know, what could have happened. I mean, he wasn't one of the buildings that went down, but just getting caught in the, you know, the the, the so, dust of it yeah. and all. Um,
1: so what you were thinking about finance at that point? <sighs>
4: I was, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, that's the you know what I basically majored in in college, and that's that's what I was doing up until then, um, and it just really made me want to, um, you know, do something more impactful.
5: Yeah.
4: Uh, my name is Kyle
9: Scheidler. I am the director and senior analyst for homeland security and counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy. I've been doing counterterrorism related issues and really focused on. Uh, Islamic terrorism primarily uh, for more than a decade now and you might think that that is a result of 9-11 but it actually wasn't. Uh, 9-11 was not really my wake-up day. Uh, Obviously it was it was tremendously impactful for me um, but it wasn't actually the, the moment that made me change my career focus and my and my emphasis so on 9 11 uh i got up i had a i was a i was a uh, sophomore in college i went to boston university and i woke up i had an early class it was a mistake on my part uh, but when you're a sophomore you're still <laughs> you're still somewhat at the uh at the mercy of the scheduler so i had an early class so i was uh, and i was late to class so i was running running the class so i hadn't seen any media i didn't know what was going on and I got to the classroom, which was a lecture. Uh, actually, it was on political and cultural revolution. Uh, it was a horrible class uh, run by this like, Marxist that was really irritating. But um, it wasn't what I was hoping to get out of it at all. But, uh, so I'm in this lecture hall, and it's not as full as it should be. I mean, you know, people skip lectures all the time. But even then, it like, wasn't even, it wasn't even like, sort of full by the normal standard. And so something's going on and I noticed that something's going on, but I don't know what it is. And you can hear people whispering to each other. Uh, But, you know, my friend who I was sitting next to, he, you know, he was my roommate. So he, he also was running late and hadn't you know seen any news or anything. So we didn't know what was going on. There was just a lot of whispering and stuff. And the professor came in and he said that there had been an attack. Um, and then he proceeded to just sort of do his normal lecture. Like nothing had changed. Um, I don't really remember what he said. I sort of blanked it all out. Um, was but- that
1: when like the first plane hit and people weren't really sure if it had been some terrible accident or was that he just didn't care at all?
9: Uh, I, I'm not sure. Um, my my instinct was it was... Um, he sort of either didn't, it didn't resonate with him or he didn't understand or uh, it didn't, it wasn't impactful to him yet. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't, who knows what he was going through in his mind, you know, uh, people deal with trauma differently. So maybe he was thinking like, just, you know, keep plowing ahead and do what mm-hmm. you're supposed to do. Um, but anyway, so I, I have no recollection of, of what was taught in that class at all. Um, I don't remember anything he said. Um, and then I went to my next class, uh, which was... With the great uh, historian and analyst of, of, of the Soviet Union, Yuri Renan, mm. uh, and we show up in class, and the professor's not there. I didn't know there. he was
1: your professor.
9: Oh yeah, I took every class he, he offered. Wow. Uh, it, he was the best. Uh, I mean, we did we did workshops predicting the the Ukraine Russia war. You know, wow. this was and this was you know ten more than well it was a twenty long time years ago. ago. Twenty <laughs> years ago, uh, I, don't, I don't want to pretend that I'm that old, but I. am. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so he was great, uh, and he was not there. And so now we're sort of sharing stories because nobody at this point has seen a TV yet. Uh, We've all just been running from class to class, so nobody's really sure what's going on yet. Uh, But the professor doesn't show, and it's like, you know, that old saw about, like, 15 minutes, and then you can leave. So 15 minutes pass by, and we leave. Uh, It later turns out he was being interviewed about the attack. Mm-hmm. And the one thing he relayed to us after he chastised us for all leaving uh, <laughs> class was he said, "It is not a question of if this is state-sponsored. The question is which state." Hmm. And that was his takeaway. Uh, and he he made that statement on you know like September 11th. And of course now we know a lot more about what happened. We know about uh, the the Iranian role in in helping hijackers move through. From Afghanistan, we know a little bit more about the role of certain elements of the Saudi government uh, in facilitating the movement of hijackers. Weren't like all
5: but
1: two Saudi or something?
9: Yeah, the vast majority were Saudi. That's correct. Hmm. Which was probably done on, I think, done partially on purpose by bin Laden. One, probably because he, being a Saudi, trusted Saudis. And two, I think it was intended to create... uh, Conflict between the US and the Saudi government
1: because the Saudis had kicked him out, right? hmm And that's why he had to go to Afghanistan
9: uh, first the Sudan and then Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah and so I uh, I go back to my dorm room and Me and my my buddies go up to the smoking lounge, which is the only place where there's a TV and We just do what everybody else in the country is doing which is watching the news coverage uh, I mean, I may have tried to call my mom, but you couldn't get through on the cell phones. Um,
1: why was that? Everyone just because just... everybody
9: was trying to get through on the cell phones. Yeah, and I was in Boston, and, and of course, two of the planes had come from Boston. Uh, so you know, my parents were freaking out. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they would have thought that I was on a plane, uh, but just the you know the yeah. connection is is enough that that it's troubling. And
4: did
1: people have? I mean, two thousand one. Did people have? now every single person without fail has a smartphone was that did people have cell phones like that or was it still sort of
9: no the people had regular cell phones and so we're we're sitting in the smoking lounge and everybody's smoking
1: wait sorry to harp on this but the texts so you couldn't even text someone like now you could text your family but that wasn't even a
4: thing
9: it was really challenging to get anything through yeah Yeah. and uh, i finally did get a hold of them obviously and and let them know that they were all right and my brother who was in the naval academy at the time Mm. Uh, they were also very worried about him for obvious reasons and of course that's a military installation so they locked everything down it was very challenging for them to get a hold of him but uh, and he was fine too obviously but so we're in the smoking lounge and I don't smoke but everybody's just chain smoking and watching the news and um, you know you, you at the, by that point obviously both had hit the towers uh, and I think uh, I'm trying to remember the timeline, but I think the Pentagon was hit while we were up there watching, mm-hmm. and that was when we realized it was it was even more extensive than we had thought. Um, you know, we obviously knew right away it was a terror attack, um, but we didn't really have a good notion of what kind of group would do such a thing. I remember Al-Qaeda eventually started getting floated, and it was interesting—it it it was interesting to me because uh, I had written an article for, or it really was a comment, it was a letter to the editor um, about the coal bombing, uh, the the bombing of the USS Cole by Al Qaeda the previous year, uh, saying if we do not respond to this aggressively, you know we will continue to face attacks. And I used the example of, you know, the Germans who responded to to the bottom meinhof gang and the israelis responding to you know the the uh, the raid on Entebbe to say like you need an, a robust aggressive counterterrorism policy to you know hunt these people down uh, or they're just going to keep hitting you uh, little did i know how, how right i was going to end up being
1: how well known at the time because i remember that day my teacher explaining what hijacking is and what terrorism is literally not words in our vocabulary at that point um, but ever since then everyone knows what it is so at that point in the public um were people aware of like when people heard the word terrorism were they thinking oklahoma city
9: uh probably a mixture they were probably thinking oklahoma city um you know the 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 biggest terror threat on the fbi's radar at the time was eco-terrorism so Mm. it was you know people firebombing suvs and and uh, burning down ranger stations and that kind of thing. And I think that was probably most people's recognition. There was some uh, recall of of the sort of Islamic terrorism going on. I mentioned the USS Cole. There were a couple of other similar he, incidents in the previous leading up years.
1: Osama bin Laden had tried to bomb the World Trade Center in the 90s. 19, yeah, the
9: 1993 World Trade Center bombing mm-hmm. uh, was done by elements of what would become you know, oh, right. Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Ramzi Youssef uh, the blind and, shake. and the Blind Shaikh. Uh, who were not, they were not Al-Qaeda, but they were elements of what would you know, eventually become.
0: So after that and the USS Cole bombing, those just weren't big enough to make a big drastic change in terrorism policy or like it, was 9-11 it the was straw still, that broke the camel's It was still, back? a
9: th- terrorism was a thing that happened somewhere else, right? It was a thing that happened, you know, we had, you know, uh, y- you would have attacks on, you know, military personnel abroad or something like that, but you know the bombing of the of the you know the USS Cole was a major thing, but it was not something that impacted most Americans. So they just mm-hmm. didn't think about it. I don't think.
1: And the nine eleven commission said that the intel they should have known it was coming, but they didn't because they didn't communicate well. That's now been contested as to how if that was accurate. I don't know, but it for the national security um, experts the some were more aware, and they probably should have been expecting something, right? Well,
9: yeah, I mean, um we now know quite a bit more about that. We know, for example, that the FBI was was on the case of a number of the hijackers. Obviously, you have that twentieth hijacker, uh, Musawi, who was in fact um, arrested, and uh, you know individual arrested with him, actually. Um,
1: and that was because an immigration, at immigration, he was interviewed, and the guy thought he was sketchy, and
9: and they yeah they turned yeah. him on to the FBI, and, and the FBI started watching. I mean, the importance of the immigration angle is something that's been lost, I think, for a lot of people. But a number of the hijackers were visa overstays uh, or uh, otherwise in violation of the immigration system. And if we had decent uh, internal immigration enforcement, we would have we should have been able to catch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that after nine eleven, that was a major focus of the Bush administration was to actually start, you know, hunting down all of these because you'd have people, you know, that they would they would come in from Saudi Arabia or something and they would be registered as a student, but they would never go to class and nobody, you know, and then they would just go do whatever it is they wanted to do. Uh, and so the concern, obviously, is, you know, you've got people moving in on visas and then you lose track of them and, and who knows what they're doing. So there was a major effort to do internal immigration enforcement after 9-11. But we've abandoned that for the most part now. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I uh, so we're, you know, we're sitting there chain smoking and watching just the video over and over and over again. And I remember that was one of the things that is so you know, dramatic was just of the televisual age, right? It was just, they kept playing it over and over and over again. And people just kept watching it over and over and over again and sort of burning it into your mind. Um, and I remember then, you know, in, in the days that followed, um, people like to talk a lot about the um, unity that the country had. But my, my my major recollection of that is actually, like, by October, there were anti-war protests in Boston. Uh, I remember me and my roommates went down to to, to heckle the communists. <laughs> and, uh, that yeah, they were already marching through but the streets they- with puppets uh, against, you know, hands-off Afghanistan and U.S. imperialism in Afghanistan.
1: Was that after we invaded or just like... Yeah, it was, okay. was, this
9: was like October, so...
1: And what was the i don't understand that why were they saying they were just saying we shouldn't invade afghanistan that we deserved it or something
9: yeah i mean essentially uh they they you know we shouldn't have responded the u.s military is always bad u.s use of military force is always bad uh people that the u.s military attacks are always right um
1: which is leftover KGB active measures that sunk into the left.
9: Yeah. Sure. and You know, it's some of these... Uh, some of these... And this was... It was not the big anti-war rallies that people might remember from the later Iraq stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hadn't yet metastasized, but it was the same characters. Uh, and so that... I mean, that really stuck with me that this was going to be a problem. Uh, that that the u.s was going to have a, have an issue with the home front and people trying to undermine the war effort and keep us from essentially keep us from winning uh which now 20 years later it looks like they successfully did yeah um so that stuck with me quite a bit and of course it came out you know it came out that it was al-qaeda and you know we started learning more about al-qaeda and i thought okay you know and and, and the you know, the immediate aftermath where we went into it, we went into Afghanistan. We were very successful. And I was like, OK, this is a this is a solved problem, right? Uh, American military power is going to go in there. We're going to send in special forces. We're going to shoot a lot of bad guys in the face. Problem solved, problem staying solved. And that's not what happened. Um, and then obviously we had the, the change of focus to the Iraq War. Um, and I remember all of those policy fights, and that's when I started getting interested in, in these things a little bit. But I didn't really start getting focused on like Islamic terrorism and 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 the ideology behind it and stuff until the cartoon, con- the Danish cartoon controversy, which I think was '05, and. Oh five oh six,
1: and this is uh, Salman Rushdie.
9: No 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 no. This is um, so a Danish uh, newspaper is trying t- to do a story about how a publisher for a children's book can't get anyone to draw Muhammad. Mm. And it wasn't it wasn't like a negative character. It was just like a literally like here yeah. are here are the you know
1: because that's against Islamic law. You can't depict Muhammad. That's why Middle Eastern art is a lot of geometric for the stuff, m- right? for the most
9: part. I mean. It, there are elements of Islamic history where that was that rule was less aggressively applied, but yeah, for the most part. Uh, and then, of course, there was the riot. You know, and so the paper has this event. They get people to draw pictures. Most of them are inoffensive. There's, you know, the one famous picture of uh, the the bomb turban uh, by Kurt Westergaard. But for the most part, they're not really offensive pictures. And uh, eventually, a, con- a controversy is ginned up. You know, there's rioting, there's violence across the Muslim world, there's attempts to boycott Denmark uh, by, you know, the various Islamic countries. And I said, oh, this is a bigger problem than we Mm -hmm. thought. This is a much larger issue than we thought. You know, uh, a couple, you know, a couple hundred, maybe, maybe a couple thousand foreign fighters in Afghanistan uh, committing terror acts. We have a solution to that. Uh, But... We didn't have a solution, and we maybe we still don't have a solution to the reality that a far greater movement of people agreed with them, uh, agreed with Al Qaeda, and and sought the same things that Al Qaeda sought, uh, just in different ways. And of course, you saw you know here in the United States, uh, you know those hardcore communists that I mentioned who were protesting against the war. They were partnering with, you know, very various Islamist groups here in the United States to do to do the same sort of thing and undermine and undermine counterterrorism efforts. And that was when I realized that we had a much bigger problem than, than we thought.
1: Can you go? Just I think we skip over this part a lot. But the hijackers, like what their mentality was, you know, that they're going to die and they get have it 72 virgins and paradise for their family or whatever it is like what can you just describe the mindset of both bin laden and what they thought they were accomplishing
9: sure so um the hijackers themselves and we we know from like muhammad atta who left uh a series of i think they were basically dire entries left in his car you know they were they were quite clear and they were all they were open all of the hijackers knew they were going to die it was the purpose of the mission. Um, we think of it as a suicide attack, but they don't really think of it in terms of suicide. They think of it in terms of martyrdom, mm-hmm. meaning to uh, to kill and be killed in uh, what they would call jihad fi sabil Allah, meaning uh, fighting in the cause of of, of Allah, uh, which uh, they believe, you know, immediately. Enables them to go to heaven. It enables them to bring family members with them into heaven when they die uh, it is a uh, religious um, Conviction uh, Where the the motives and rewards are all in the afterlife Mm -hmm. So there is no negotiation there. There's nothing you can offer a Jihadist that is better than the reward that he believes is coming to him in the afterlife. So how do you how do you negotiate with
1: that? for him and his family?
9: For him and his family. But of course, for certain people, for people like Bin Laden. Well, he's not the one committing martyrdom operations, is he? Right. You know, he has a much more strategic view about it, and you can see that in the in the documents that we captured from him where he talks about, you know, his vision for what they were trying to accomplish, their desire to uh, awaken the entire Muslim world by sucking the U.S. into a conflict and beating them, as they believed they had beaten Afghanistan, uh, as they believed they had beaten the Soviets in Afghanistan, uh, and so,
1: which is so sad because, obviously, as we've seen, you could say that that was correct based on the way we've left Afghanistan.
9: Yeah, I mean, they, and it, you can read the average Al-Qaeda or Islamic State publication because they're based off the same ideology. And it's not just what we do as it relates to them, but they see all of our problems, uh, all of, whether it's domestic, uh, you know, they, you know, they would comment on the, the BLM rioting, for example, and Al-Qaeda would say, you know, all of this is a blessing from Allah you know that the enemy is being punished for their infidelity, um, meaning being their infidelness. Infidel- yeah. Yes, their infidelness, <laughs> uh, not their infidelity. Uh, <laughs> the same root word. Um, and, and they, they, so they, they absolutely see everything through that lens. Yeah. Um, and it makes it, it makes it very difficult to dissuade them, or persuade them, or negotiate with them.
1: I've heard the argument made that some of the hijackers were going to strip clubs and bars and things that were not um, kosher is definitely not the right word to use. Or, thank you. Um, and saying, see, they didn't actually believe it. They didn't have any real religious conviction. Could you explain that?
9: Absolutely. Uh, so that's completely wrong. Uh, it's a extremely common. Uh, actually, one of the things we tell law enforcement to look for is uh, if they're looking at a suspect that they think may be interested in jihadism, a jihadist ideology, is major changes in behavior. So if they are a very religious person, uh, and all of a sudden, they stop going to mosque entirely, uh, if they are wearing a long beard and then they shave it, uh, if they are previously a family man, And then all of a sudden they're spending their time getting hammered and going to strip clubs. Those major changes in behavior can, they're not necessarily guaranteed, but they may be indicative of preparation for a martyrdom operation. Because uh, they are doing things, uh, in the case of the strip clubs and the the drinking, they are doing uh, what they know to be sins because they know they will shortly be forgiven. Uh, so
1: jihad or di- martyrdom outweighs anything else you could possibly do.
9: Correct. It is it is an act which would obviate any uh, any sin or crime you may have you may have previously committed, mm. and so you you do see that uh, with potential martyrdom operations where, where the individuals will go out and do things they wouldn't otherwise do because they know they're about to die.
1: Yeah. So given that. This is, Osama bin Laden said, we're going to suck America into a conflict and make them lose. And, and the images that have been on every um, channel for the last month of us withdrawing from Afghanistan, what do you think the mentality is of Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all these people now?
9: Well, I'm extremely thankful that bin Laden didn't live to see it. Uh, but I, I have no doubt that they're ecstatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, that they believe that this symbolizes a major victory for them, that they should follow this victory with more attacks uh, in order to continue to keep up the momentum and further weaken us and promote our decline and eventual defeat. Um, How they, how they will do that. I'm not sure. Um, In, in the past couple of, Really, since the death of bin Laden, al-Qaeda's strategy has changed a little bit. Uh, the current head of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, is an Egyptian. He is a far more
5: intellectual, uh,
9: intellectual person than bin Laden was. Bin Laden was relying on that mo- questions of momentum, questions of imagery, questions of power. Um, the, the famous strong horse... Right. So he want to create the impression that the Americans are weak. Uh, Zawahiri is much, I think, more clever, much more patient, much more about building capability. So we saw after the death of bin Laden, al-Qaeda moved to uh, c- recruiting and co-opting various uh, liberation-type movements. This was the, the attempt to take over Mali, for example, in Africa, mm. where they moved into this pre-existing conflict took it over and then uh, essentially took over uh, much of Mali to to impose Sharia and they were eventually of course defeated by the French with U.S. assistance. But that is I think much more closer to what Zawahiri's preferred strategy is. He was always about overthrowing the Arab states Uh the U.S. allies first and then targeting the U.S. And And Bin Laden wanted to target the U.S. first and then
1: Just I don't I, if I recall correctly, Zawahiri was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And though the Muslim Brotherhood did overthrow our Arab allies with U.S. help. They did. Under the Obama in, administration. In
9: Libya and yeah. Syria uh, and Egypt um, and in Tunisia. Now, we've seen those gains reversed, mm-hmm. thankfully, over the past couple of years. Obviously, Egypt first. Uh, Libya is still a disaster area. Syria is still a disaster area. Tunisia we had some very good progress with the ousting of the uh, corrupt brotherhood government there um but yeah so i mean that you make a very good point which is that Zawahiri had this strategy and they were executing on it so they you had al-qaeda groups operating under different names mm-hmm. uh, so that people didn't know that they were al-qaeda and they didn't get the same level of response from one the US. of
1: those groups was the paid security for the ambassador in libya that was killed in the Benghazi attack in 2012.
9: Yeah, the February 17th Martyrs Brigade, which was uh, yeah, it was a Muslim Brotherhood right. unit with with ties to Al Qaeda.
1: So the Obama administration's um, innovation, if you could call it that, was actually working with these groups,
9: right? Which of course is what we saw in the aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything done in Afghanistan by the Biden administration as they have been withdrawing has been sort of a mirror image of the kinds of things we did in Libya and Syria where they have partnered with the Taliban. They have they're hinting at giving the Taliban aid money and even intelligence sharing uh, if they are willing to fight Isis for them, which is not going to happen um, and and they you know relied on the Taliban to provide security for for Kabul, which caused us all manner of problems with the evacuations. So there's definitely you know there was a moment, in, in, uh, in U.S. strategy and U.S. policy where we we really shifted our focus. And I mean, some people have said we changed sides in the war on terror. Uh, that might be a little bit too aggressive, uh, but it has a ring of truth to it.
1: Yeah, and I can see why people go there because it does seem really stupid, but could you explain the mindset of, of people making those decisions and the most giving them the most benefit of the doubt that you could.
9: <laughs> I'll try. Um, so to begin with, I think they have a sense of universal values in which they think that all people share the same desires. Uh, and which
1: is democracy and freedom and...
9: Right, and, yeah. and, and gender studies and, and right. all of the things that a, a late-term liberal democracy has...
1: They take it for granted that that's, everyone wants that.
9: Right. Now, so it comes down, right, the inability to understand that mentality of the hijacker, mm-hmm. right? And, and and the millions of Americans who were watching their televisions and saying, I cannot understand somebody who would do this. And this was, I mean, this was on everybody's lips. It was like, why did they do this to us? Who would Who would do such a thing? Yeah. And the people who are running our foreign policy have still not, to this day, internalized that there are some people who cannot be reasoned with, will not negotiate, uh, will only seek victory or death.
1: Right, and I think they they really look down on religious people.
9: Right, they have no con. They don't. They don't take religious people in general seriously, and they certainly don't take, uh, you know, fundamentalists. Uh, of any religion but certainly islamic fundamentalists seriously but you have to take people seriously you have to take people at their word if they say they believe something and that they're going to act on it
1: then, and they have and they
9: have in the past and they say they will in the future you should take that seriously and we won't we uh the u.s foreign policy elite doesn't want to do that they don't want to admit that you can't negotiate with everybody you know we we've been negotiating with the taliban since what 20 at, least 2013 probably earlier 2010 uh and they thought that they could just do this thing where they just negotiate forever
1: but i think that is something that they they genuinely feel like diplomacy is a goal they don't look at it as a tool of furthering the country's interests it's that the goal is to to have diplomacy and and partly because it's their job and they Feel it's, more relevant that way.
9: It's uh, They're more interested in... It's That's why they call it a peace process, right? They're more interested in the process than the peace.
1: Yeah, and then getting some picture like...
9: Which, uh, you know, uh, people don't think about this, but it's relevant. At the same time we were dealing with um, Afghanistan and then later Iraq, the Israelis were dealing with the Second Intifada. Mm-hmm. And that was the major explosion of Hamas... And Hamas's capabilities, um, and and it's not a coincidence, you know. Uh, Hamas is uh, is likewise a jihadist motivated organization, uh, unlike some of their counterparts who are more, you know, Palestinian nationalist or, or communist oriented, uh, like the PFLP and, and the and the Fatah martyrs, you know, martyrs brigades and those kind of guys. But it was Hamas that led the second intifada in large part. Um, so you were you were seeing a jihadist awakening, not just with Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, but also with Hamas in in the in the territories and so on. And what was our response there? You know, you had the uh, you had the election of Hamas, uh, and and we said, oh, okay, that's okay. They were they were they were elected. Uh, maybe they will be moderated by rule, uh, which you see the same clowns uh, going out and writing today. Uh, oh, well, the ta- now the Taliban has to rule and and having to rule moderates you. No, it doesn't. It doesn't yeah. have to.
0: Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at org so we can get in touch with you.